Hello and welcome to Season 2, Episode 2 of the Scene From Above podcast. I'm Alistair. And I'm Andrew. And we are your hosts for a show that aims to bring you an informal discussion about the cool things happening in and around the world of Earth observation at the moment. You can reach us on Twitter using the hashtag SceneFromAbove and can access the podcast in a variety of ways, including, but not limited to, our websites, jogger.co.uk and acgeospatial.co.uk, Blueberry and Apple Podcasts. Please leave us a review on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, if you head back. I've been keeping track of the, the orbits last time when we, when we spoke, 127 things in orbit. Now, mm. this year, 143 from spacetrack.org. Uh, before we jump into the news, only four from planet have gone up this year, and they were in the start of January. So I wonder if that is accounting for the slightly lower numbers. I was a bit surprised, actually, because I was wondering what the life cycle was of a dove and how many they'd have to, to keep in orbit and launch to maintain the mission one status of a, a every part of the planet imaged every day. Do you think that's saying anything about the sector, whether or not the, the hardware side of things is slowing down? We're about halfway through the year, aren't we? I mean, if it was to be a linear thing, we'd be 286 things in orbit versus last year's 379. Last year was the world record, and a heck of a lot of satellites were launched all on one launcher. That's true, yeah. You know, you can't keep growing the number of launches, that, you know, the commercial ones. At some point, we'll have to generate some commercial sustainability, I would think. Yeah. I saw something about a an illegal launch by a US company, I think it was. Oh, yeah, I saw something like that. Yeah, they hadn't been given permission, but they sort of shoved their, their microsatellite on board an Indian launcher anyway. It seems bonkers to me that you would be able to sneak... <laughs> Yeah, I know, yeah. I have no idea. You can't sneak something from an airplane, can you? Yeah. I I have difficulty getting through the the barriers on a train. (laughs) That's just me, but it's... um... You know, sneak something on a rocket. So there's no chance of getting you on the next SpaceX then? No, I'd get blocked. <laughs> Sorry, your your ticket's not valid for this company, I'm afraid. Anyway, that's a nice digression, isn't it? I, I yeah. think I'll try and, uh, as we go, keep a track of that. I'm sort of curious about it. So the news, the news on the 8th of June 2018. The first thing, really, that came up uh, at the end of last month in May was a $34 million um, Series B financing raise for ISI. Now, ISI are doing something that perhaps even two or three years ago, no one would have thought would be even possible, which is put SAR sensors on a CubeSat. Okay, cool. That's very cool. They launched their first one in January, and they're now sort of scaling up to, to launch nine more by the end of 2019. And this is what this funding round's all been about. I believe they're a Finnish company. The images that have come back that they've shared seem to be a very high quality. So this is a, an, an exciting time. And I, I side are sort of leading the way, I think. Yeah, I'm just looking at um, an image of the Solent and Isla White. Yeah. Really nice imagery. But you could you could rerun the um, analysis you did of ship tracking on one of your blogs a few months ago on data like that. It'd be really good. It would be, wouldn't it? I'm sort of interested in that. That post came about from thinking, what's big enough to be seen at 10 metres to count. I wanted to mention this an article from geospatialworld.net about the six top geoint trends. Let me read you the um, top six trends in geoint. 
and see if you feel that they're trends or you know if they're so general that you can't really understand their sort of link so ai and automation social media and mobile data so that's number two analytics as a service drive for cloud short shelf life technologies and geospatial information science they seem to be quite general topics to to my mind. Yeah, like you say, they're so broad as to almost be, well, not really trends. But the geospatial information science, I'm not really sure what they mean by that, because that's what we do, isn't it? It has a nice fit in this more modern automation AI world based on location information and stuff. I don't know. I'm looking at this list and the one that stands out most for me is analytics as a service because that pulls in almost everything else so i would boil these six down to two the social media and mobile data which is i suppose collecting location information and then having your analytics as a service which takes in as far as i can tell all of the others in my opinion yeah well good page to have a discussion about <laughs> yeah 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 no definitely it's always a difficult thing to write i think friends well, cloud is unquestionably booming, isn't it, as a business? Yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I saw a slide the other day saying that AWS is in year on year has grown 49%. Yeah. And did you see Microsoft are sinking one of their servers under the North Sea? Yeah, but also Microsoft are leading the growth. They've got 98% year on year growth. Wow. You cannot argue with the statement that the cloud is a trend. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. You know, the numbers back it up. Um, so today, on the 8th of June, it is World Ocean Day, and there's a link that we'll put in the show notes, which is a site that shows the Mediterranean sea surface temperature climatology. And it's really nice in that it's using AVHRR data, and I think it might use also some, some modelling, to create a series of graphics on the page. And I'm no oceanographer, so I'm not looking into them in any real depth, but they're really intuitive. So you've got basically colder temperatures in blue, warmer temperatures in yellow and red, and they have a really nice plot of monthly average sea surface temperature in the Med from 1982 to 2017. So you've got the years going as columns, and then you've got the months, 1 to 12, going down as rows. And it's really quite interesting to just see the color. I mean, you can't make out any detail in, in the graphic, but you can see the color changes throughout the year. And also you can sort of see how there seems to be a, a general trend towards warming of the waters of the Mediterranean as, as time goes on. Yeah, I just thought it was a, a nice way of presenting some information where you're not getting totally swamped by data. It's just a nice, simple little graphic. Um, what else do I have? Oh, yes. So OpenEO, who we have talked about before and who are trying to put together an API for processing Earth observation data on the cloud, yep. they have a user requirement survey that is out at the moment. It's open until the 18th of June. So if you have an interest in processing Earth observation data on the cloud, the link will be in the show notes and I seriously suggest you go over and complete it. It takes about 10 minutes to complete, uh, if that. So I've, I've completed it and it must, yeah, it was between five and 10 minutes. It's a really simple form, but it will really help the open EO developers. Mm, I need to fill this in. Some non-satellite-based Earth observation news. So the Environment Agency Geomatics Division has put out some reprocessed LIDAR data. So this is a composite 
DSM and DTM, so that's surface model and terrain model. And there's a WMS feed available from data.gov.uk. It's interesting, isn't it? I, I, I Generally speaking, we're looking at one meter with the biggest coverage, I think. I don't think it's the most user-friendly website. I hate to be critical, but I find it difficult to find what I want. We've talked about access before. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at the LiDAR point cloud on the page in sort of various areas where I live. And the list that I get back, what, 2011, 2009, 2009, 2009, 2009, 2008, 2008, 2006, 2006. Um, I, don't, I don't know what I'm not sure what I'm looking at. <laughs> but it's great that they're opening it up. I just, it, perhaps it's difficult to, to disseminate all this information. Anything else? Or shall we move on to the topic? So our, our topic is based on conversations I've had with people over the last three or so months, which is effectively what software should I be using in remote sensing and earth observation? And initially, I wanted to sort of consider this more in the proprietary sense. If you were setting up a company to do remote sensing, earth observation data, what would you what would you want to be using? Um, is there any discernible difference between different different commercial software or are they much of a muchness and you know can you get by with open source i think we probably both feel that the answer to the question is yes what are your sort of thoughts on this as a sort of high level thing Alistair? like you i tend towards the open source software so i haven't really used proprietary software for some years but my impression generally from people i've spoken to is that there seems to be less differentiation between the different proprietary softwares at the moment than there once was. I always remember that Erdas Imagine was usually the go-to in the jobs that I was working in. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that was twofold. One, it was very easy to use as a user. So it had a reasonably intuitive interface and secondly it had a very powerful spatial modeler i think before others did then on the flip side envy was really what the power users were using because that integrated with idl and if you understood how to code properly and you understood what you were trying to do in envy then quite often envy would give you a little bit more oomph it just seemed that there was a very clear differentiation between those esri really wasn't a player at the time in i mean it had the spatial analyst toolbox and that seemed to do certain things well but you would use it more as a visualization tool. I think initially your judgments are very much formed when you're training at degree level. In terms of that, you can potentially get blindsided. And I think universities, you know, it's tough because they can't sort of say, here's everything, (laughs) go mad. I think they'd love to be able to do that, but that's probably a logistical nightmare. Certainly from my background, ERDAS was commonly used in oil and gas. ER Mapper was a big thing that then ERDAS bought. And these things have gone through different owners over time. At one point, Esri were having not just the spatial analyst extension, but they had an ERDAS extension for imagery. Because at one point, RAS just did not really feature other than the raster calculator. And then I think as standard, they introduced a, um, a sort of raster package. I send the loosest possible word. I think as a general kind of high level thing, it was good enough. These very specific softwares tend to be quite expensive. One that we haven't mentioned is uh, PCI Geometrics. That's another, uh, like all of them, another very good 
piece of software. Does that still exist? Yeah. I remember it being around, but I don't, I've never met anyone that's used it in the last few years. I think it's pretty well established. I think it's pretty pretty widely used. I think I think you're right with the IDL in NMB being a major differentiator. I suppose two that we haven't uh, mentioned yet is eCognition and Idrisi. I, I know more about Idrisi than I do about eCognition, I'll be, I'll be honest. And it comes from Clark Labs uh, in North America. It does specific things very well. So it has a set of tools and workflows to do things yeah. like land cover analysis or, or uh, segmentation, things like that. And I remember it doing those things very well. Um, again, I've not used it enough to know how good it is in, in a, as a broad brush, everyday image processing tool. Ecognition, I have never used. Have you used it? I, ha- I haven't used it, but when I have seen it, I've been pretty impressed, actually. But I think really we're, I don't know if we're actually going to get to the answer because, I, as I said before, I feel software agnostic. So if I was to be setting up a company, what would I choose? I'd like to think I'd try and try everything to try and find the one thing that does everything. And I'm not sure I would get there. Yeah, because I've spoken to people who use Global Mapper. So that, again, is not something I've used personally. But people who do use it really, really like it. And it's not as expensive as some of the other larger packages. I think Global Mapper has quite a large group of users. Right. I've used it before. Okay. And I think that some of it in places is very good. I have trouble doing certain tasks that I'm used to doing in other software. But I think generally speaking, because of its cost, if you were setting up a company, that wouldn't be a terrible start. Yeah, okay. And you can buy plugins and things for it, like LiDAR plugins, depending on what you're doing. When I started, my bias was more towards the Erdasses and the RMappers of this world, because that's what I sort of came across at the start. But then they... As I became aware of more things, I, th- I think that my bias is more towards open source now because I, I see more things, more sort of common functions being able to be done in tools like Orfeo and QJS and the like. And it, it just comes to the point of what can't I do? I think that's the, the ultimate question. QGIS is an interesting one for me. Do you use that as a way of processing your data or do you use it as a way of visualizing what you've processed using your Python code? So I use GDAL primarily through the bash command line on Linux. I would imagine that you probably use it through Python, but do you do that through QGIS or do you use QGIS as an endpoint? I mix it up a bit, to be honest. I use the semi-automatic classification plugin quite a lot. It does depend on what data I'm using. But generally for me, <laughs> I sort of see images as NumPy arrays. Okay. As you know, I like I like GDAL and I like OpenCV and I like Scikit-Learn. And I think those all talk fairly nicely to each other and do the vast majority of the things that I feel I need to do. And quite often my curiosity means that I'm trying to do things this way to try and sort of take my work um, and possible research in, into that direction rather than being reliant upon sort of clicking software. I'm a bit conscious of, of what I do to sort of as a bit of a differentiator to, to be able to, to be used to be scaled. I'm not sure how easy it is to scale the proprietary software if it's just standalone. You mentioned this word power user a couple of times in, in, in the intro and I think that's quite an interesting term because at one point that was one of the terms that, that was used basically to say you know you're the GIS or you're the remote sensing person or you're the whatever person you're the power user 
and a power user would have this sort of toolbox of things whereas a sort of your general user they wouldn't have erdas imagine for example or mv they would just be reliant upon probably arc and maybe more now qjs potentially it's an interesting topic and i don't think we're going to be able to answer it because it does depend on what you're trying to do for the most part it's a it's a bit irrelevant now because they're they're almost like for like there are differences but they're on the sort of minor end of the spectrum i have a gut feeling that development on envy is actually increasing because i the amount of stuff i see coming out of harris on social media and at conferences and things like that so i would say that they're actually on on the up at the moment as for some of the others kind of think maybe the majority of the the sort of new stuff that's coming out the the innovation aside from envy at the moment is actually happening in the open source arena because i've pulled up a list of various different open source image processing toolboxes and 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 softwares and actually this is only this really only touches the surface but you've got things like the uh, the sentinel toolboxes yeah that isa put out and you've got obviously the semi-automatic classification plugin which you got Saga, which I use. You've got Orfeo Toolbox and, and Monteverdi, which, again, I use. Grass has unbelievable functionality for all sorts of things to do with both Earth observation data and, and other types of rasters. The optics, which I've used in the past, and also something called OSIM, the Open Source Software Image Map. Mm, yes. I've used that in the past. And I think maybe the difference is, is that these things develop really rapidly and they can pull in other bits of code from things like GitHub and, and elsewhere. And the thing that's slightly nicer from my perspective is that you can use the bits you want and you can create your own tools based on all of these different systems. I quite like this sort of Linuxy type of, um, or Unixy, sorry, I should say, type of mindset where you have tools that do one thing, but they do it really well. And then it's up to you to pull them all together and, and sort of pipe them together to create a workflow. One of the other things I want to discuss with you is how well set up you think Python is to just get going and doing some of these analyses. Yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on any or all of those. I think that Python is ready. And I think if you're a geospatial professional, and I include you know, Earth observation, GIS, anything, anything in that, I think that today you need more than just software skills. You need Python, R, or SQL, I think. There's one other piece of software that we haven't mentioned, which is FME, and I have used that quite a bit in the past and it if you're not going to get into python and you're not going to get into sql and you're not going to get into r then at least get into fme because that's super quick really great and relatively simple to use and has a vibrant community that allows quite open and and and, and shared for debate questions and i think that that's that is scalable because they do have the cloud uh, and they do have fme server so that wouldn't be the worst way to go. What do you think of the number of people I imagine you come across like I do who haven't actually got a GIS background, but they're they're able to install QGIS and they can download a a shapefile and they're able to do what they want to do using these software because they're easily available, but they might not be answering the questions they actually want to answer. Hmm. I, I don't know what questions they want to be answering, but I generally think ecologists, town planners, any, anybody with some sort of need for that, the more people that can access this data and do those kind of things, the better. So that's what open source has done for me. That's a very positive outlook. I, I like that. I feel quite strongly that most 
of the growth in the geospatial world is going to come from from people they don't care that it's from a satellite image and they don't care it's been done in gis they just care about the thing that they care about which is the end result and i don't think that's sort of saying we're doing ourselves out of a job either i think that you know we, we need to step up and move our skills into different areas and, and and do the things that are harder to do to automate it the truth is there is no prescription at some point you have to make the decision and i think ultimately what we're saying is that decision won't be crippling because there's so many other options out there that can complement that decision yeah and, that, and most of the commercial software we feel and that is about sort of <laughs> an extensive you know several months going through clicking all the time and, and, and sort of coming up to some sort of valuation we feel that you could choose the one that that you feel you're most comfortable with using and then go for that exactly um and it and it also is very similar on the open source front although there's many more options because it's developed in a, a much more community way it totally depends on your use case and what you're trying to do if you had unlimited money i know that your business is built around open source would you buy proprietary software and uh, no i wouldn't okay i'd buy a bigger computer though <laughs> well that's that, that that's another topic in itself isn't it <laughs> yes no, I would stay open source. I am very much now, my my personal philosophy is very much ingrained in the open source movement. What about you? If you could have anything, would you would you buy a big package? <laughs> <laughs> that sounds really wrong. <laughs> <laughs> what software if you could have any software tool, what would what would you have? I don't know. I don't know because I think if I could, I probably would have a proprietary piece of software just so I've got some sort of validation. And I sort of see it a little bit like insurance in the sense that if my code stopped working, could I quickly get it working in the desktop? Not really a, a good business case, but um, conversely, if you get too ingrained with the desktop, you could put yourself at risk of being stuck in, in that world. I was going to ask one more question, Okay, which is a hardware question. Your preference is for Mac, is that right? No, actually, it's not. It, so <laughs> I used to have all PCs, and then some friends of mine got MacBook Airs, and I was like, wow, that's just really cool. It was really thin, and I liked the, the metal and everything else. So I've got a MacBook Air now. But as soon as I can justify putting a, a Linux distribution on it, then I will. Mm, interesting. My feeling is on computing that you can get a lot of value for your money if you don't go for the sort of branded. I was a fool. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, I'm curious because a lot of consultants go with the MacBook. A huge percentage of people in our world are using those computers. Yeah. I haven't really used those in the past. The robustness of the MacBook Air seems to be really good. I, I like the hardware. I like the fact it's got nine hours worth of battery life. But yep. now there are comparable systems that don't cost as much as this cost. Once I, I change from this laptop, then I will probably get a similar laptop, but not um, Apple. Mm, interesting. The biggest change for me, actually, was solid-state disk. That was brilliant when I got my first solid-state disk. I, I want to say at the end of our discussion that we haven't hopefully given a bias towards a piece of software or not. I think we're, we're, we generally do like open source. I try to be as fairly unbiased as we can in our discussions. If we haven't mentioned a piece of software, that's not because um, of any negative reason towards that software. It's just that we 
didn't remember it at the time when we were discussing. Well, well said. Yeah. Please let us know on uh, our hashtag Seen From Above if you disagree or you have anything to contribute to this discussion. It would be very interesting to see. I don't think we've even got anywhere near answering the question we set out to answer. And I think some companies probably have their own um, opinions and, and techniques. Um, I think people have their own preferences. And, and maybe, does it affect you where you make your next career move? Are you looking at what software companies are saying you need to have? Or are you thinking, does that matter? Does it not matter? Cool. Okay. If you have any requests for new segments or topics for us to discuss or guests that you'd like to hear from, then please do drop us a line through Twitter. Um, Andrew can be reached at at Matt underscore Andrew. And I can be reached at at AJG Jogger. So that's A-J-G-G-E-O-G-E-R. Thank you very much for listening. And until the next time, you can reach us, as we've said, at hashtag seen from above on Twitter. Thank you very much, Andrew. Thank you, Asta. Speak to you soon. Yes. Goodbye. Goodbye. And did you notice I didn't write hashtag this time? I'm learning. Podcast music is Cracker Jacks and Tin Whistles by Ocean Heights and is licensed under the Attribution Non-Commercial Creative Commons license. Available on freemusicarchive.org.